0: welcome to rob's reliability project a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work now let's get rolling welcome to rob's reliability project i'm rob kalvarowski this week's podcast is another live q a about rcm with special guests nancy regan doug plucknett and aaron evans we talk about rcm We talk about training and we talk about the differences and similarities between FMEA and RCM. If your company sells products or services to engaged maintenance and reliability professionals, I am offering some special advertising packages for my live webinar series. So if your company's looking for that, send an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn to get those packages. Next, if you haven't yet, check out robsreliability.com and sign up for my weekly reliability newsletter. I have some content in that newsletter that you won't find anywhere else, so definitely check out robsreliability.com and sign up for that. And lastly, If you haven't yet subscribe to rob's reliability project on your favorite podcast platform and let your colleagues know about the podcast i'd really really appreciate that as we go forward and with that thanks for listening and here's the live q a about rcm welcome this is uh this is the rob's reliability project I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This is webinar number six, I believe. So we're doing one weekly. Um, we're doing it Q and A style. I want to build kind of more of a community because I know everyone's in isolation and it's it's tough. It's tough to be alone all the time. And and also like on that note, like I am holding a kind of a hangout session on Friday. So nothing to prepare. It's not going to be recorded. Alcohol is welcome. Um, so just if you want to come at, come in and hang out, I'll send out uh, an email after this meeting with the, the link to how to register for that. But that'll be at 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday. So that'll be some fun. Uh, get some beers, get some drinks, in, and we'll hang out. So we got a, a special panel of guests today. We got Nancy Regan from RCM Training Online and the Force. Nancy, how are you?
1: I'm excellent. Thank you,
0: Rob. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to have you. And we have Aaron Evans from Arms Reliability. Aaron, how are you?
2: Doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. And we got Doug Plucknett from Reliability Solutions. How are you doing? Doug, how are you?
3: Fantastic. Other than like the rest of you sitting at home going, uh, oh, it'd be nice to go outside. And where I'm at today, uh, we had some snow. So, where, like- where are you at, Doug? Rochester, New York.
0: Oh, you're on the East Coast with the snow. That's uh, too bad for you. (laughs) So, So we got some questions from the audience. And again, I mentioned it. If you have any questions as things pop up, just shoot it into the chat. So the first question we got is, in what ways does RCM positively impact asset management? Nancy, do you want to kick us off
1: Sure, yeah. Okay, so for me what I have found most meaningful in the application of RCM more than anything is how it brings teams and people together. So that of course assumes that an organization is doing a facilitated working group approach but I've facilitated analyses where you've got like a design engineer and you've got an operator and a maintainer and they start talking and they realize that they have their own perspectives about the equipment mm-hmm. and they all stop learning things about this equipment that they, that they didn't know. So it fosters a deeper understanding of the equipment and then they all start working as a team together too. So they understand how, what an, what's important to an operator and what's important to a maintainer and what's important to the design engineer. So for me, that's the number one when it comes
0: to RCM. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I mean, working together and getting that knowledge pervasive through the organization is huge. Erin, anything to add?
2: So I, I would agree that I um, I really like the cross-pollinization of, of that approach. But one thing that I really appreciate about RCM is that it is that it's looking at options. So you're moving past the, this is what, this person thinks, and that person thinks, and that person thinks, but you can, in that collaboration, you can look at what the data is telling you, and then also really weigh what the benefit of action versus inaction is, which is, I think, what I appreciate most about it.
0: Yeah, I love it. And, and that's the thing that I think we see across industry a lot is this run to failure is actually a valid maintenance strategy. If we decide in advance right? And, and that's the key point I <laughs> want to make here yes. is in advance and it makes sense. So that, that's one thing I just want to hammer home. Doug, anything to add?
3: Um, no, you know, the, the, it's really is the collaboration. That's the biggest part of it, especially uh, the learning that takes place on both sides. Uh, the maintenance guys gain a level of respect for the operators. They really think the operators, many of them are just button pushers, right? especially when I get into the chemical business, you know, it's like well, you push the button, the thing runs, and you sit back in your chair and you watch it. And, and realistically, there are a lot more than that, and they learn that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side of the, the coin is the operations guys learning, especially uh, from our instrument electrical guys, you know, how the controls work, right? What it means when they – they'll overhear an engineer and an instrument guy or an electrician talking about you know, this circuit's failed open or that device failed open or closed, And they they kind of listen to those conversations, but when they start hearing those words, then all of a sudden they tune out because they don't understand what that means, right? And to get in a group and have the electrician draw that up on the board, this is what an open circuit looks like. This is what a closed one looks like. These are devices that we normally wire open. Here's ones that are normally closed and why the system works that way, right? Then all of a sudden the operators start talking. And I, I, you know, I think I've got a high level switch that might be failed uh they'll close you know I, I filled the tank up i checked it with a stick the level should come in right and i don't have an alarm yet so it's, it's either out of adjustment or, or something's wrong with it right and all of a sudden the electrician is like whoa wait a minute you know guy really understands what's going on here so it, it makes a huge difference that way and it's it's fun to see that learning take place
0: yeah and, i i agree and i i mean doug Just to pry a little bit further, like how much do you think that people don't really talk to each other in these organizations?
3: (laughs) (laughs) A lot more than you would ever expect. I mean, sometimes there's individuals that do a lot of talking, right? But they limit their, their people that they'll talk with. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially new guys coming in. That's one of their biggest complaints Uh, when I was a maintenance supervisor is they'd say, Actually, you know the operators really don't, don't talk to me. They might be having a problem, and, and they'll even if I'm working on a job, they'll go off and, and, and get one of the guys with more experience and start asking questions on something I'm already working on, right? So it really takes, and that's really a trust and experience type thing. And and RCM helps with that too to get people to sit in a group and start talking about what they do and what their responsibilities are. It, it makes a huge difference, um, especially when you have a success. Right? When you get that RCM done and you get it implemented, it makes a change. All of a sudden, there's a level of respect for everybody to sat on that team for the people that weren't on it. Right? They start seeing a different. How did they change that? And What did they do and what did they talk about? And just getting people to start thinking about why things fail as opposed to what failed. I would say another huge gain is to uh, stop just replacing components and start talking about why things are failing. We've really built this uh, a culture of component replacers do it faster, right? And when they change the wrong component, you don't ever see that on the shift report, right? It's the second or third thing that got changed that they, they stick in there. What happened to the other two that were incorrect, right? We threw a perfectly good part away. If you don't see those get credited back to the storeroom. Right. And all of a sudden, when you start talking about things in the RCM, you see the smirks come on people's faces and they're like, yeah, you're right. That does happen. We need to talk about why things fail. That's where it makes a difference.
0: I love it. Now we got a few questions in the chat. The first one from Hassan. How could RCM help in a crisis like COVID-19? Nancy, do you want to kick us off on this one?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting or it's a synchronistic question because I got a text from someone the other day where they're still producing in their plant, but they are not allowing contractors to come into their plant and they have a lot of contract maintenance being done. So the question is, is there an industry standard on, you know, what tasks do we not have to do? What intervals could be extended? That kind of thing. And so... You know, the answer, you know, reliability-centered maintenance is not a silver bullet, and it's not a shiny object. It's something that you have to put, you know, your, your time into. So if an organization has proactively done RCM, when a crisis like this occurs, you can go back to your RCM analysis and figure out, okay, what are the technical details? Why did I choose six months on this task? Why did I choose three months? And you can go back at the initial interval. You can look at P2F intervals and useful life, you know, what the the details that were documented in the RCM analysis. And right there, you can answer your own question Mm -hmm. if you can extend an interval or not. And if if someone can't come in and do the maintenance and you don't do it, you will already have in your database what the consequences, you know, what the failure effect is. So what you're looking at if you don't do it. So that's how I think RCM can help. But unfortunately, it's not like a Band-Aid. It's something that, that should have been done proactively before.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I think it actually segues into another question that we got before was, like, how do we look at our RCM and with this time of uncertainty or with our, maybe our business outcomes have changed, how do we implement that type of thing? Like obviously, either our plant is maybe we're we're in food manufacturing, we're more, we're more profitable now because or our downtime costs us more because we're like over capacity, or what do we do if we're on the other side? Do you have anything to kind of comment on that, Aaron?
2: I do. So I think going back to or kind of piggybacking on part of what Nancy was saying about Going back to the details and looking at those intervals, looking at those drivers, you know, one good thing about using um, RCM in your analysis is that if you understand what the driver was for setting an interval a certain way, or setting a, um, well yeah, setting an interval a certain way, or understanding what your P to F interval is, if you're doing some sort of um, inspection activity where you're trying to find out what could potentially be going wrong, um, if you recognize that the interval was driven by let 's say your cost benefit ratio and now well now the cost of being down or having downtime has changed, then now you can look at what you might need to tweak about what you 're doing what you 're not doing, where you 're focusing that effort
0: yeah, I love it and and just specifically on me, I mean the other day I was building business cases for you know using downtime of Like I'm in the oil pipeline business and given that yesterday's oil price was negative, um, it changes a lot of things, right? And so it's just something to think about is like things change and RCM is not this set it and forget it type of analysis that you do once 20 years ago and it's done forever. You're going to have to revisit it eventually. Now, Doug, do you want to comment a little bit on, like, how often should we be revisiting? What should that process look like?
3: Yeah, revisiting is one of those uh, things that you talk with customers and you say, look, anytime that you do an MOC, hopefully they're doing MOC, management of change. When they make a change to a machine or a line or a process, right? that's where you want to go back and say, what were the failure modes that are associated with the devices that are involved with that MOC, right? And do a review live as, as things go to that. Anytime you make a change to a process, you should be reviewing what you've already talked about in terms of RCM and going back over to that to say, just do those failure modes still apply? Are there some different failure modes? Or is there a different level of maintenance that needs to be done in terms of the change that we just made? So that's really a best practice. Now the key is Rob, Getting people to understand that they need to have an MOC process in place, right? I'm I'm working with a, uh, you could call it a small business, a family-owned food business right here in Rochester. That uh, uh, they're just getting started in, in RCM, and when I brought up the MOC thing, I kind of got some high eyes. They said, "Yeah, we had a uh, you know an engineering manager talk about that a couple years ago, but he, he's gone, right?" <laughs> And I said, well, you you actually had somebody in that was trying to lead you in the right direction, I think, right? Because they're making changes to their lines um, weekly because they're struggling, right? And you go, man, how do you know what works and what doesn't work when you're making that many changes all the time, right? You need to have a process, and that process is going to help you in the long run, and that's really a great way to – uh outside of setting up something timed in your cms system that says hey once a year we ought to take a day and go back through some rcms we did you could do it that way but the moc thing kind of keeps the rcm alive right makes it a living document as opposed to something you review
0: i love it i love it and it's something that we see often and i've i've talked i wish bob latino was on this call because i remember when we talked about root cause analysis he he basically said A lot of companies, when they stack MOCs on top of each other on the same process, that's where you find these holes that lead to significant failures. So it's just an interesting thing to to talk about. Now, Nancy, we got another question in the chat. And it says, what is the optimum team member number to lead an RCM? Maybe let's not talk necessarily about specific numbers, but like who should be included on an RCM team? You're on mute, by the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was because I I cleared my throat earlier and I pushed (laughs) mute. Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. So generally speaking... You need to have everyone involved who would be associated with the system that you're analyzing. So for example, if you're analyzing an electrical system, you're obviously gonna need you know, an electrician and you, you may have different people there than if you were doing a hydraulic system. So really there is no set number of people, but so like, let's say for example, we're doing the hydraulic system on the Chinook helicopter. I would have um, a flight engineer, I would have a pilot, I would definitely have a maintainer. I would have a logistician there because when you work with the government, it's nice to have someone who is responsible for the tech pubs. So that's just you know an example. So really, you need to have the people involved who have a stake in all the different perspectives of of the equipment. So mm-hmm. I, I've analyzed some analyses that only had three working group members. And I've had others that have had eight or nine, which, which is a little large, but you know, sometimes you need that many people. So really it, it does depend, there isn't a set number. Now you definitely, in my opinion, you know you, it's hard when you go beyond like eight, nine, 10 people and you get higher because you know, then it can be a little chaotic with everyone in the group. So I think if it's possible to cap it at about eight, that's good, but you know, that's just a general rule of thumb.
0: Doug, I heard you chuckling. you have anything to add?
3: <laughs> I have done some with uh, uh, Cargill in Europe where we had 17, 18, 19 people, wow. with, you know, five <laughs> to six languages being spoke. And, and as a facilitator, at the end of the day, you're just ready to, you know. I don't know if I should have a beer because if I do, I'm just going to melt, I think. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> So yeah, so I, I agree I, with Nancy. Keeping that group small really helps.
2: Yeah, if you a rule of thumb is not necessarily a number, but just making sure that the people who are in the room understand the performance standard and what has to be done with the equipment, either whether it's operations or maintenance or um, flavors or disciplines of maintenance and design people who can really speak to that performance standard and how you're going to use that performance standard to maintain better.
0: And Aaron, let's, let's talk a little bit about that performance standard. How should we be defined? Like, I know a lot of people and, and this, this always bugs people, but when we talk about like functional failure and functions, like how do we actually start doing this type of work?
2: So I like to start at the, I like to start at defining that function. So let's Let's use something that's really basic let's just talk piping right now, so if I'm only looking at piping from that basic function, then you know I may say, "Oh, I needed to move um, I needed to move from here to there. You know, I needed to contain um, whatever chemical I have from here to there. But the reason that I like bringing in that performance standard is because then we're looking at. Um, some of the things that can bite you if you're if you're not keeping that in mind, so I needed to contain this chemical with no leakage um, within the corrosion allowance it has to it has to be able to withstand these operating pressures it has to um, it's it's on private property so there can't be any weird smells or anything like that. And so, you know, if you're looking at all of those things, then you can really break down the different ways that you can actually lose that function. Because for example, if it's on private property and it's um, you're falling into that weird smell thing, you're not being a good neighbor. It it really, they really don't care that it's going from point A to B the function that they're um, concerned about is whether or not it impacts you know, their property and what they have. So I think, if we, I think if we go into enough detail in defining that function, then it opens a lot up to us and how, how we can lose that function and what we might need to do to mitigate it.
0: Yeah, I love it. And, and to me, and Doug, maybe you want to comment on this one, but it seems to me that a lot of the, quote, secondary functions, if you will, are the ones that actually cause us more grief than the primary one? Do you want to comment on that?
3: Um, yeah, <laughs> it's I tend to, to fail to understand sometimes that you know, let's say I've got a line and I'm making widgets, right? And I need to make 120 widgets an hour or something like that, and inside of that line. I've got a, a photo-eye that's watching things go by. It's it's open and closed, and it's looking for, let's say I'm making beer, and it's looking for cases and spaces, right? If it doesn't have the capability, that photo-eye, to recognize is at the rate that the line runs, the cases and spaces, it may just see all cases for 15 seconds when, in fact, there's a tiny space in between because they're running very efficiently. And the next thing you know, they're having all these little stops on the line, right? And those stops are adding up and they, they go, well, I go up there and I wipe off the photo Y and then it runs fine for five minutes, right? Well, the next thing I know we're back running good and I've got three quarters of an inch between them. And again, it, all of a sudden it doesn't see the space because it's not adjusted properly, right? If the timing isn't set up properly in that and that secondary device, right? It affects that main function of being able to put out that 120 a minute, right? And they sometimes lose sight of that. that uh, there's some things that are just relatively simple that if you don't talk about the performance standards of the secondary device, right? Um, you may miss out on, on something that's that's causing you those day-to-day pains and not realize it, right? right. It just wasn't designed right to begin with or got changed in the middle of the night because they didn't have the original photo ID that got put in there, right? All those standards need to be in there, um, and that's where – again, you try to tie to what I put in my RCM has to match up, which into my hierarchy. And if I have that hierarchy, then I can have a good bill of material and all this stuff ends up there's that relationship that makes a big difference in the end.
0: Now, we got this question from a few people, actually. And Nancy, I'd like to, you know, obviously, I'd like to, to ask you it. But basically, they asked, what's the difference between FMEA or FMECA and RCM? So do you want to just break it down for us?
1: Yes. Okay. If you've ever been to Bed Bath & Beyond, have (laughs) you ever heard of a bed in a bag? You know how you, it's this, it's this big plastic bag with a big zipper on it. And inside you've got your comforter, you have your fitted sheet, you have your top sheet, your pillowcases, and even the pillow shams to make everything look pretty. So sometimes the way I describe OSM is it's like, it's like a bed in the bag. So I get this question a lot and people think, I I get the question, should I do FMEA or should I do RCM? And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that FMEA is built into the RCM process. So Philly Modes and Effects Analysis, that's the first four steps of the RCM process. And when you throw in step five, which is consequences, you get your FIMICA or your Philly Modes, Effects and Criticality Analysis. Now, I remember that I asked, My mentor, John Mowbray, once when I was just learning, when I was in practitioner training, I raised my hand and I said, well, why would an organization do FMEA and not finish it? Because, you know, when you do your FMEA, you know, you're building all the information or much of the information that you need to make decisions. Should I do some kind of proactive maintenance? Do I need to do a default strategy, or maybe do I need both? So I asked the question, why would you just do FMEA? And his answer to me was, I don't know. And the way he described it is, he said doing just FMEA is like, just taking a bite out of the middle and leaving the rest. So the short answer is FMEA and, and FMECA, FAMICA, Famia, and Famika are embodied in the RCM process. So when you do RCM, the requirement for a Famia or a Famika is largely satisfied.
0: Yeah, I've I've always well, wondered that question too. Why would you just do FMEA when you, you have it all there? But. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I, say, I would say it depends on how you want to use it um, because before, before I worked with ARMS, I worked for a fairly large company, and part of what we would do to kind of help um, speed the process of implementing great strategies is there may be a, an FMEA structure, if you think about it, um, just to step back for a moment. If you're looking at equipment types, your FMEA structure for a centrifugal pump is going to be the same if you're talking overhung centrifugal pumps, right? And so if you're if you start at that FMEA, maybe you don't need to go as far as steps five and six and seven, or you're not ready to go steps five and six and seven. But you get into that FMEA and you build out that structure to understand um. The, the failures that you could experience or that you could expect that are likely for this specific equipment type. And then when you're ready to move forward into RCM where you're looking at what can be done um, to predict it or prevent it, what, what would be the default if we can't do something to predict it or, or um, prevent it? You know, you can, you have that structure there that helps you in moving it from one place to another. So that's, that's one reason that in the past, as even before my arms days, um, that I've done the FMEA is to get that basic structure because there may be a plant that has different, different consequences, different, um, different chemicals in play, different, different demand right across the street from the plant that I was in. Um, they've gone through and they've built something for this equipment type five, six, and seven, you know, why the failure matters, what can be done to predict, um, what would be the default might be different, but I can use that FMEA structure to give myself the jumping off point in. Let's get to uh, why five and six and seven matter for my facility. All right.
3: And if I could add to it, Rob, in my career, guilt. You know, Coming up through as a starting as a tradesperson, then going to a reliability engineer. You know, as a tradesperson, I was always frustrated that we weren't allowed to sit in on the design meetings, right? Because mm-hmm. we had a lot of things that a new piece, you know, Craig, where I started uh, in motion picture, where we made raw material, that probably area probably grew by 40%, right? Probably added 8,000 large assets, right? And every time they'd add on, we'd say, My God, why did you do this this way? Why don't you think about how we have to get in there to maintain this and get this apart and put it back together? And as I started learning this and going to night school, uh, one of the first things that they put me on, you know, they they said, we're going to put you on a fast track to make you a supervisor or manager, but we're going to put you in drafting, right? So here I am, I'm the worst handwriting in the world, right? And this is before CAD, so I'm having to write things out by hand, and you know, I'm working with an engineering group, and this was the first time I sat in on FMEA, right? And I thought, well, this is a really neat tool, but you guys don't talk about it at a level that makes any difference, right? Because all they're looking to do is just like uh, uh, Aaron mentioned with the pump, they're looking to say, does the pump we're looking at, will that satisfy our main function? right what our primary function is will it be able to supply enough and do what we need it to do right and then we're going to design that to say how much straight line pipe does it need on the suction side and where can we put our first elbows and oh, things yeah. like that and how much foundation needs to go underneath it but they don't ever talk about the guts of the whole thing right and how it could fail so that was always my difference between fmea fmeca and rcm was we're using fmea and the design piece to say will what we're looking at do what we need it to do right they don't think about the maintainability at that point they should but they don't right and that's when i first got introduced to rcm the light went on i went holy folks there is a way out there doing this (laughs) so uh it still amazes me that that companies do that i understand now a, a bit why they do it but realistically i say you know, take 20% more time on that FMEA and get a maintenance strategy that when you put that new piece of equipment in, the strategy's already there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and maybe, Nancy, could you comment? Like, there's some companies that just believe that you can buy a failure modes library and apply it. Do you want to comment on if that's an applicable strategy?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that needs to be approached with caution. I think that, you know, that failure mode libraries can be helpful in some cases, but what they don't take into account, of course, is the operating environment and the operational tempo, you know, what you actually need this equipment to do so failure modes may be different the other big rabbit hole you can fall into which if i can just make another comment from the thing we were just talking about you know there's a difference between a design famia and a functional famia so you know when a company does a design famia like we were just discussing it's oftentimes you know as you're going through the design process what do i need to change so i mean you're essentially doing step seven of rcm without even realizing it but um but in essence, it's, it's different than a functional familiar than we would do say today on an asset that's 20 years old that we know we need to come up with a, a proactive maintenance program. So a lot of these failure mode libraries or templates, they go into a very deep level. So we know that we manage physical assets at the failure mode level. And when I use the term failure mode, I mean the same thing as a failure cause. So what specifically causes functional failure? So if you're at too low a level, like you're talking about nuts and bolts and resistors, you may get into this thing where you end up with 500 failure modes in an analysis, and you then you have analysis paralysis. So they can be helpful, but they need to be approached with caution, and they need to be used by an experienced person. Uh, I use the term facilitator, an experienced facilitator, because an experienced facilitator would be able to weed through that with a working group and make sure you don't go at too deep of a level and get into analysis paralysis.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a great tip. And and I guess here what I wanna what I want to get into, so there was a question here about you know, is there an industry that could feel that RCM didn't give them the impact they hoped for? I'm sure that it's not industry specific, but what I want to ask for each of you to comment on, but we'll start with Aaron, is like, what are some of the, either the barriers that you see that hold companies back from getting value from RCM, or what are your, some of your top tips on how to get that value?
2: Sure, sure. So I think part of the, I think one of the barriers, um, just going back to my, especially to my plant RE days, um, one of the barriers is how easy it is to do something with the information that you're, that you're getting. And so part of what I saw often is that the building of the strategy becomes the, the task in and of itself. And so it takes a long time. We, we get into that, um, into those discussions, maybe get a little too deep in the failure modes that you're discussing. You know, you get past the things that matter in terms of of the consequence of a failure. And so people would be burned out in the process of developing the strategy and have no energy for the implementation. Or they've made the strategy so complex that reviews are now time prohibitive. And so then they get into that set it and forget it mode because it took months and months and months and months um, to evaluate one asset. Operations got sick of having to answer some of the same questions for, you know, for, um, or because you're dealing with the same questions. So I think that that's one challenge that a lot of the, when I was in the plant and also some of the clients that I work with is that you can't make the process of evaluating your, um, of evaluating or the process of the analysis become the end goal. You know, the the ultimate goal of RCM is for us to take that and have something that we can do with it. So we have to keep in mind that the goal is to is to understand what action or inaction is acceptable, and then do something with that information. And so I think that's one barrier and one challenge that I see. Um, And also, uh, I can remember starting off early on when I first started with Weibel analysis that um, there was a program that was somewhat clunky that I was using. This was um, 13 years ago. And uh, I would have to break out this big binder that was, I don't know if everyone can see me in their field, but um, about four inches, about a four inch thick binder. And I'd have to pull it out and go through and okay, and now I click. This and I do this and do that, and so the process of, of evaluating or the process of performing that analysis was so painful that most of the REs that I knew would put that binder away after training and then not open it again because they had um, they had PTSD from trying to <laughs> trying to evaluate their assets so I think ease of use and ease of implementation become big big helpers and making sure that we're able
0: to move on with it. I love it. Now, Doug, you're, you're a big implementation guy and you, you work really like that. I think that's one of the, the things that when we talked about before you've done really strongly to get your customer's value, Like, can you walk us through some of the things that you do to make sure though it actually gets translated into value?
3: Well, you know, I start out Rob with getting them to measure, uh, OEE in terms of uh, the manufacturing operational uh, speed and quality losses, so they understand where they are to begin with, and then in terms of implementation, um, I don't give them a break between finishing the RCM and getting started with the implementation. (laughs) Right, my my last day right there is we're going to develop your implementation plan. So get the people in the room. We're going to sit down and develop it. We're going to assign somebody as the leader for that plan. We're going to assign these, each of these tasks to a specific person, not a role. It's not going to be a supervisor or a planner. It's going to be Doug Pluck that is responsible for this particular task, and it's going to be done by this. Then I also show them, here's the way to sort the task. Because you're going to find when you do an RCM, let's say I've got 300 tasks. That same t- You might have the same task in there five or six times, right, for five or six different valves, for example, right? So here's how to sort so that you're not thinking that you've got this gigantic mountain of work. The mountain isn't as big as you think it is, right? Here's how you break it into – here's your mechanical PM stuff. Here's your electrical PM stuff. Here's your instrument PM stuff. Here's your operator care tasks. Oops, now look at – here we had 300 tasks. Now in the operator care, there's 30. How can you not implement 30 tasks? It's not that big of a deal. you got three operations supervisors right between the three of you, can you put together this list and can you have it done by next week? And they'll look at me and go, next week? I go, come on, there's 30 things on there. You don't have to write a book, right? You sit down and write a plan to say, here's what we want you to do each shift. Here's what you, we want you to do once a week, right? Here's your, here's your things for your operator to care. Same thing with those mechanical electrical instrument PMs. Man, come on, this isn't a big deal. Can you get this done by next week? Next week. I said, the only thing that should take more than a week or two is something that you got to do an MOC for and get some small capital or some capital money for. Those are the things that that I'll give you some forgiveness on to say, oh, it'll be a month or two, right? But the rest of this stuff, come on, you're making a big deal out of it. And I say to him, I know this because I got stuck with being the implementation manager on my first couple of these, Right. It's not that big a deal. We make a big deal out of it because, oh, we got all these other things are going on. I understand that.
2: Let's so it sounds like it. you help with the, with the small yes. bites. You help, it, you help them understand that it's, yes, we're eating an elephant, but it's small bites.
3: Yeah. And we got a bunch of people. It's not just you, right? There's a bunch of people that can eat this elephant. Let's get after it, and then <laughs> as soon as we start doing that, I start saying, "Let's look at the measures right away." Don't I don't want you to wait a month. I want you to start measuring right away because you'll be surprised that some of the little things you do will show up, shift to shift to shift that change, and that's where mm-hmm. they, it starts to build excitement. I want them to be excited about this, and and that's one of the things I do on the very first day is tell my groups. You know all the times you've sat in the break room or a lunch room and talked about, you know, if they just listened to us, we could we could make some changes here. This is that chance. These are your <laughs> ideas, right? They're your ideas. Give yourself that that right chance to shine, right? And if it's not getting implemented, then your job outside of this is to go to those people and say, Hey, what are you waiting for? We came up with all this stuff. What are you waiting on, right? Don't waste my time. Let's get this done. And when you get people excited, then that's when change happens, right? And I do, I I talk about that throughout the week. Man, your job is this, your job is this. Oh, that's a great idea. Lots of positive reinforcement, get them excited about it.
0: So, I love it, I love it. And I bet you, I just, just thinking about it, I bet you an elephant is more of a slow cook type of type of meat or smoked or something. <laughs> otherwise it's probably tough so you know no one wants tough tough meat nancy nancy do you have any top tips or like what's holding people back from from seeing that value
1: okay so the first thing is that the biggest enemy to rcm is when people aren't trained properly so You know, RCM has its own language. When you start talking about MTBF and useful life and P2F interval and potential failure condition, et cetera, it's like it's its own language. So if you start talking to a working group and you're speaking Greek, they're not going to understand you. So they need to understand the language of RCM, but it's not just the working group, but of course, management within an organization needs to understand what it's all about and why we're doing it. But the other big thing is this, so ASEAN principles are now over 50 years old, but a lot of people still don't understand what it's all about and a lot of organizations still don't use it. So the question is why? And I think that one of the reasons is, especially in in today's society and in this day and age, you know, you can order something on Amazon and it's on your doorstep the next day, right? There's, there's, when I'm dating myself, but when I first started working, we didn't have email. Email just started.
0: Nancy, <laughs> we, we all know you're just like 22 years old, right? So don't worry about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, well, no,
1: I'm not, believe it or not. But anyway, you know, you had to leave a voicemail, or you had to mail something, so everything is instant in our society. Well, reliability-centered maintenance is not a shiny object, but it is something that can transform your organization if you do it correctly with the right people. One more thing, my other tip is, I think a lot of organizations don't do RCM because they think they have to do it on everything. You don't have to do RCM on everything. You could just do RCM on a motor that drives a compressor. You don't even have to do it on the whole compressor. So you can pick and choose what you do RCM on. So that's the other thing. Don't think that it's an all or, or nothing project.
0: And, and just to dig in, like if we're picking something small, what should we be picking?
1: Oh, okay. I mean, like a, a general sized analysis would maybe be a, an, an air compressor or a steam compressor, something where, I mean, in RCM lingo, you know, 100 ish, 150 ish failure modes that you could get through in two weeks with a working group. If you want to keep it to a week, then, you know, pick something smaller. But in, um, in my experience, something like a steam compressor. Uh, that, you know, that, that is part of maybe one of three compressors that's supplying plant air. So, you know, something significant, but you can get through that in a couple of weeks with a team. Um, like the hydraulic system on the CH-47 Chinook helicopter, we did that in a week and a half. So that kind of, you know, maybe hopefully gives people, uh, you know, an idea of, of, of scope in terms of scope.
0: Love it, love it, love it. Now, just the, the last question before we get to plugs. This one came in and they they wanted to ask about training and whether or not, like how do you train people in RCM or what should the training look like, you know, that type of thing. Now, Nancy, I know you're offering a free online training course at rcmtrainingonline.com. Do you want to comment on what that is, how, how people can get it, and like what should RCM training look like?:
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know RCM training can be delivered online. It can be delivered in a group setting. Really, it just depends on how an organization wants to learn. Um, so what I've done, I, we were talking before we, before everyone was online, I, I've had a list of things I've been wanting to do for a while. And one was to create just an RCM overview course, a course that just tells what RCM is all about and that is online. And so I finally finished that. It was a little labor of love. And so if you want to access that, you just go to rcmtrainingonline.com slash overview and um, you can get access to it there. So it's, it's 40 minutes of online training broken up into different units and it just gives a general overview of the process. So that's not enough, obviously, to go ahead and implement RCM, but it, it gives you the gist and it shows you what it's all about so you can start to get comfortable about wanting to or how should I take the next step towards implementation.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So check that out for sure. Now, Aaron, do you want to give us some plugs? Like where should people find you? (laughs) What should people be looking for? All that stuff.
2: Sure. So um, within our, within our course offerings, we do have, um, well, I'll step back for a moment. One thing that I like to do before or when I go on site to work with a client is give them that brief, introduction these are the this is the terminology you might get sick of hearing me ask this question but you know as we get through it we'll start to get some efficiency we'll gain some efficiency in how we review um review this equipment but so i I would recommend that if you're going to do those um to do that sort of analysis to go through that overview with the people who are going to be participating so that you make sure that you're getting the best use of their time and their, um, their knowledge. Um, but ARMS is offering some things online. You can, you can find me at, at ARMS, um, E Evans at ARMS Reliability, but, um, or give me a shout on LinkedIn. But ARMS is offering um, trainings virtually in RCA and in RCM. Um, we've converted the things that we are providing. And so um, that's one thing that you can do. Uh, there are other books that were that were really helpful in understanding and unpacking some of how our work processes how um you may whether you realize it or not already have rcm built somewhat into your work process so then it'll be a matter of understanding how your company is using it or how it can be used at your company and so i would recommend that looking at some of those books and um looking at Mubre's book, looking at Ramesh Gulati's book, and just getting a better understanding. Looking at Doug's book. (laughs) Looking (laughs) at Doug's book, yes. (laughs) And Nancy's book. (laughs) And Nancy's book. Thank you. I haven't haven't seen, I haven't been through your books yet. Um, But I would say there are so many many, um, things and resources and and people who are willing to help and service uh, providers Um, myself working for one of them, but recognize that you're not alone in this. So I think what a number of REs do sometimes is we isolate and then we lose that collaboration and we lose that ability to cross pollinate and learn from other groups and learn from other, um, learn from other disciplines.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. And you can check that stuff out. Armsreliability.com. Doug, anything to plug?
3: Um. uh Plug, you know, my website is rcmblitz.com. My contact information can be found there. Um, It's pretty simple, Uh, plucknet.doug at gmail.com. I, you know, would also add in terms of the training, sure, I have all kinds of offerings, but I, I can tell you that myself, I probably took five or six different RCM courses from different providers, before I even sat and started looking at saying I, I should write my own, right? I I just wanted to learn as much as I could about that that product and and reading the books, all the books that are out there. Um, I know Nancy may have felt the same way about I did when I sat down to write mine. I I kept asking, I kept avoiding it for years, saying the world world really doesn't need another RCM book, right? <laughs> and then I still, at the same time, had clients saying to me. But, you know, we really enjoy the way you teach us, and we've read a lot of the articles you write. You're a good writer. Why don't you write a book, right? Just so happens that I'm working on another one right now. It's not an RCM book, though, but it's it's really a story about uh, the typical manufacturing plant experience and and their struggles with reliability. So it's going to read more like a novel than it is going to be a. Uh, here's your step-by-step plan on how you do things. It's the struggles that people go through on a day-to-day basis. And uh, I, I put about 20 pages in uh, just this week, which is nice because I I really went through, I think I told Rob last time I talked to him, I've really been in a slump for writing. <laughs> so, all of a sudden with this COVID thing, with nothing to do, I've been forced to sit here and go, you know, let's, let's try this. And
1: uh, I'm having fun
3: with it.
0: That's great to hear. Yeah, and you can check that out, rcmblitz.com. Nancy, anything to plug?
1: Oh, anything to plug? Well, okay, so the overview course, um, that that is an excellent offer. And um, also, you can just go on RC, rcm, that's my Boston accent, rcmtrainingonline.com and just check it out, all the different training. And there's also, if you want a free chapter of my book, you can just go to the, to the book link and you can and you can um, download that. You can download chapter one. But Doug, you know what I think is really important? Because you say, you know, does the world really need another RCM book? But, you know, I think, I, 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 do, I think the world needs all kinds of books on all kinds of different topics because everyone learns differently. And sometimes someone will say something in a way that you get it, so like, Doug, you may explain something to me and Rob may explain it to me, but I might get the way you say it because you just say it in a way that I need to hear it. So I think it's important to check out all kinds of different information. And, you know, it's not necessarily that one training way is better than another. It's just different and a different way that someone learns it.
3: You should also plug your videos on LinkedIn.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my videos on LinkedIn. Oh, okay. I have something to plug, Rob. Okay, I have something to plug. Um, I'm going to start a new challenge in a couple of weeks and it's going to be super fun. So if you don't follow me on LinkedIn, follow me because I'm going to announce it there and it's going to be, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be fun.
0: Tag me in it and I'll blast it out. I love
1: that I can see the excitement. Okay. Really? Okay. I'm going to tag you. I'm I'm writing it down. Absolutely.
0: Tag Tag me in it. I'm happy to share. I'm happy to share it.
1: Okay. And when you hear the name of it, you're going to say, oh my gosh, she's lost it. But I promise I haven't lost it.
3: It's
2: okay. It's It's okay. okay. Like
1: a fox.
0: (laughs) I I lost it three weeks ago. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I mean, first off, you know, Nancy, Aaron, Doug, I, I really appreciate you guys joining us. And I really appreciate you spending your time with us and definitely sharing your expertise and and absolutely like check out their offerings if you're you're on this panel. And definitely subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to or follow me on LinkedIn for the memes. Everyone loves the memes. Yeah, and then the last thing I just wanna I just wanna mention is kind of what's what I've been really trying to get and the reason for the hangout is I want to help sort of bring our community together. And I know a lot of us we're in isolation, we're working at home, we're we're kind of missing this connection. And even Aaron, what you said about, you know, everyone thinks they go about their problems themselves and they think that they're unique in some in some way. And, you know, hence why, you know, I'm bringing this together a little bit in more of a social format, is I really want to bring us together and, and have us realize that, yes, maybe we can't go to, you know, the SMRP conference, or we can't go to Knoxville for for their conference, but we can get together online and we can support each other and we can be here for each other. Like we're going to get through this, That that's a guarantee. And we're going to be stronger on the other side. So I just want to leave you with that. And You know, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Rob. Thanks again, Rob. Been fun. Thank you guys. Stay safe.